and during some of the toughest times I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time even to this moment uh, of different things that I that mean to me different sayings that mean a lot to me uh, things that I strive for recognizing my responsibility to give back reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say I'm going to break the mold two days after my second injury my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall, no quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me, and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, which means that I get to work with executives in the corporate world and athletes in the sports world. And I founded a company which is called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team of coaches and facilitators are on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, emotional intelligence, communication, skills that are essential to human performance, when we label these skills as soft, it devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out last October. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere that books are sold to purchase. And you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased. And I've been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Additionally, I run an accelerator program where we involve one-on-one coaching with myself and a group experience via Zoom in an annual in-person retreat. And the accelerator is designed for executives who are interested in growing, learning, and figuring out how they can perform better and lead better. Our next accelerator launches in January 2022. And believe it or not, spaces are actually being filled up right now. If you're interested in learning more about the accelerator, feel free to email me. My email is brian at strongskills.co. Once again, that's brian at strongskills.co. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand our reach. Thanks to all of you who continue to support the podcast and continue to support the book and everything in between. I feel so fortunate to be able to sit down with people like our guests today, and I just want to continue to give them a platform to share their wisdom with the world. And speaking of today's guest, 
I'm so excited to share Chris Singleton, a former professional athlete who was drafted by the Chicago Cubs in 2017. Now, you may hear that and say, well, well, 2017, former professional athlete, that's not that long ago. Well, here's Chris's story, or at least a snippet of his story. Following the loss of his mother in a racially motivated mass shooting, which you probably were aware of, she was murdered at the Emanuel African Methodist Church in Charleston, South Carolina, which was a, a massive, unfortunate, awful, national, global story. And after that devastating, devastating moment, Chris has now become an inspirational speaker and best-selling author who has shared his message of unity and racial reconciliation with clients such as Microsoft, Biogen, the Houston Texans, my hometown basketball team, the Washington Wizards, and many more organizations. He shares with over 50 organizations and over 30,000 students every single year and shares a message of empathy and forgiveness, skills that I hope that I have if I ever go through tragedy like Chris did. And I think what I appreciate most about Chris is he's young. He's making an impact on the world at an age when many of us are still trying to find our way. But don't mistake his youth for a lack of wisdom. This conversation is packed with all kinds of gems. And I know you're going to love and feel what Chris has to share. And I think that's a big thing. Chris isn't just saying these things to hear himself talk. He's really trying to make sure that you can feel his experience and have an understanding for where he's coming from and why he sees the world the way that he does. So you're going to be inspired by today's conversation. I think it's going to make you feel a little bit more optimistic about where we're going as a society. And so with that, I'm excited to share Chris Singleton. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been fascinating following your journey and we're going to get into, I'm sure all of it today, but I actually wanted to start with something more recent. So we're recording this on July 19th and I live in Washington, DC. So two nights ago uh, on Saturday night, there was a shooting outside the Nats park. And um, I had friends that were at the stadium that night and hearing the fear that they had during that experience. And there's obviously video footage of people scrambling and, and running around. I'm curious for you when, when you saw that, what was your reaction to that experience? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it kind of brings up emotions for me, but more than anything, I just, I'm, I'm more aware of stuff like that happening. Right. So most people think, Oh, you know, I saw it on TV, but you know, it won't ever happen to me. Whereas with me, it's like, now that it's happened, I'm, I'm always aware of my surroundings. I'm always just, and so it's somewhat of a, a slight form of PTSD, right? Where I'm always just thinking about my surroundings, my environment, you know, just making sure if things were to happen, my family would be okay. Um, and so when I see stuff like that, it's alarming. Number one, of course, you never want to see stuff like that happen, that happen but, um, you know, it's, it's sad to say, but it's not surprising, you know? Yeah. You said a slight form of PTSD. Why do you say slight? Yeah, it's because I've, I've gotten uh, a lot better with it. It used to be where I, I would uh, walk into a room and I would always have to see the door, right? Some people are still like that. They just call it being cautious. Or I would uh, see somebody walking in Walmart and I would say, hey, 
if this guy tries to take me and my family out, how would I make sure that we're okay? Right. I, I used to go through these scenarios every single day. Um, and I don't, I don't have that anymore. Um, now it's just trying to, you know, be aware of my surroundings. Um, and I call it, you know, officers are always on alert. And I talk to officers about this. They're always on alert just in case. And so for me, I used to be on alert because I was always nervous. And now I feel like I'm, uh, I'm less of that in, in more of the just in case, like the officers. What changed for you that got you from maybe being neurotic or anxious um, at a level that may not have been healthy for you to a level now where you're alert and you're aware, but perhaps it doesn't stop you from, from really living how you want to live. Yeah, I think um, one was uh, me being okay with, you know, no longer being on earth. Like, I feel like I'm, I'm a believer, right? I, I believe that, you know, Jesus walked the earth, he died for my sins and, you know, whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so as a believer, um, it kind of gives me um, a sense of peace, you know, in my belief that there is, there is eternity in heaven, right? So um, I think that kind of eases my mind, uh, whereas most people are nervous about, you know, passing away. I'm super young, man. I'm 25, right? But I, um, I don't really fear death. Um, you know, I've been super close to it, lost my parents very young. And so, being so close to it, I've seen that it doesn't, you know, not everybody's going to live till they're 80, 90 years old. Right. And so for me, uh, I think the, the, the level of hyper awareness all the time, uh, kind of has dimmed down because I'm okay with where I'm at, uh, with my faith. You mentioned faith and you grew up in the church, but was there a shift that occurred for you at some point where you said, I'm a believer uh, a lot of people that grow up in the church or in a, a religious environment don't always choose it. They just are sort of obligated to do those things. Um, when was it for you that you sort of embodied that and, and became really clear on on how you see faith and how you see death and how you see life? Yeah, I'd, I'd say uh, everybody that grows up in the church is obligated to go. Right? There's no like, oh yeah, I'm you know I'm seven, I want to go. No, you're, you're going. <laughs> And so uh, that's how it was for me for a while. And, you know, I would have called myself a believer, right? I was, you know, I guess reading my Bible when my pastor was telling me to, or my mom was saying the scripture, I'll try to memorize it in the car or whatever. But it wasn't until I lost my mom um, that I started to have a personal relationship with our creator. And, and, and for me, it was, you know, not having anywhere else to go, diving into the, the, the best-selling book of all time, right? The Bible. And reading it and, and kind of putting those words into my life and praying on those words, meditating on those words. And um, I always say that God, you know, placed forgiveness on my heart when I forgave my mother's killer. And because that was something so out of this world, I had to figure out more about this, this, this Jesus guy, this, you know, the, our creator. And so I started to read the Bible and that's where the relationship uh, for me really becoming a, a believer, like I said, kind of sparked after my mom was taken away. There's so many paths to go down because someone else might say they don't believe in God after witnessing the atrocities that your mom and others went through. But for you, you went toward it. And what inside you allowed you to go toward faith rather than run away from it? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And, and I, I often say, like, when your mom, when your mother's like murdered while she's praying, there's two ways you can go. You can say. There's no way God is real, because if he was real, this wouldn't happen. Or you could say, God, I don't know how it happened or why it happened, but there's no way I can get through it without you. 
And I went with the latter. And the reason why I'm here today is because of that belief. Um, and I, even if I wasn't a believer, I would want to be, right? Um, and so for me, I mainly think, uh, you know, my, my brother struggled with that as well. He struggled with thinking, hey, Chris, I know where you're at with your, your walk and your faith, right? But, you know, my mom was just taken away while she, in a church. And so it doesn't make sense for you to be talking about God and talking about how, you know, you believe that you can get through things because of that faith when our mother had the same faith and she was taken away. And so those conversations are tough. Um, and I'm never one to throw a brick of religion at somebody because I think that's the easiest way for somebody to run away. Um, but I share my heart and I know what God is he's done in my life. And I hope hopefully I can uh, be the salt and the light of the world and share that good news with other people. Yeah. I mean, I, you're talking to someone I, I, for me, my journey with, with religion, I was brought up Jewish and um, I would still identify as being Jewish. And I had a moment where I was leaving the Western wall in Israel with one of my best friends and we were walking out and he was always, I think, more connected to his faith. And I remember him just saying like, like, I was like, yeah, I don't know if I believe, believe in it. And he looked at me, he's like, Brian, well, like the way I look at it is what's the downside. <laughs> like if I, if I believe in it and it's true, like there's not a whole lot of downside, but if I don't like there, there might be some downside. <laughs> and for some reason, that simple concept stuck with me. And then I had another friend who said to me, I said, I, you know, I just don't know what, how much I believe in it. And and how much value it adds. And he's like, Brian, you read a ton of books about philosophy and, you know, science and research and self-help books. And to yeah. your point about the Bible, or in our case, the Torah, like th there is so much wisdom to be had if you do a deep dive into those books. And those books have been around for ages. Um, Forever. Yeah. And so I'm still, I would say curious. And I, I think I am still asking questions, which is, I think, a big part of religion as well. Um, and, and appropriate. but I, I love learning from people like you. And honestly, this is like the truth here. I'm jealous of people that have the ability at 25 years old to say, I'm going to live. And if I die tomorrow, because I've lived, I'll be okay with whatever happens next. Um, because I believe that there is a path for me also beyond not having that is actually like a, a scary place to be in. Um, so I just shared Definitely. a little bit about me, but I'd love for you to jump in and, and pull on one of those threads that, that sort of speaks to you. Yeah. And, and you said it, you said it like for me, I always would say, man, you know, even if I wasn't a believer, I would really be super jealous. Like you said, like, I want to believe because all this can't be for nothing. You know, I, my pain is got, there's gotta be a purpose for my pain, right? For me, I think the purpose is to, to talk about forgiveness, to talk about how it's uh, reshaped my life, to talk about how regardless of what we go through, it's all about our response to that adversity, right? So I feel like I have a purpose because of the things I've gone through. If I didn't have faith, if I didn't um, have certain scriptures that kept pushing me forward, I would think, man, so all of this is just, life is beating me down for no reason. Um, and I think that's where some people get into, uh, get, in, get in trouble if they don't have those pillars, whether it's just a, a pillar of a quote they had as a kid, or whether it's a pillar of faith or whatever that pillar may be, you kind of have to have those things because life will throw tons of rocks at you, right? And if you don't have something that's going to keep you to uh, sustainable, right? Keep have a, a foundation of some sort, then you, I feel like it's really tough to keep pushing forward. Um, and so 
that's kind of my perspective on it. And, um, you know, I always say, like, I have so many friends that aren't believers, right? They're like, Chris, I love where you're at, man. You know how I am. And I never, I'm, I'm never one to try to keep pushing and pushing. Um, but I just hope that people see me in the light that I shine and they'll say, man, I want to know more about that Jesus guy. It's so interesting because I'm thinking about your, your journey here and I'm thinking about other, other shootings and I think of Parkland and how a lot of those students took their experience and now are advocating for against guns. And, and that's sort of been their focal point. And there have been other atrocities obviously that have led to people standing up for what they, their purposes and what they believe their role is. What happened with your mom in Charleston, there are multiple paths um, as far as how do you create a mess, a message out of that mass? Um, there's racial, uh, it's a black church and a white supremacist. There's guns. Yeah. There's Charleston and, and sort of the dynamics of that city. There's faith, which you're talking about, you know, she's praying and, and, and there's, there's that component. Um, for you, you said my purpose, like how do you think about your purpose? And you're wearing a shirt that says unity. So, I mean, from a purpose standpoint, how do you think about your purpose? Yeah, so the, the mission that I have is pretty simple. It's to, to remind people there's certain things that we can't control in our lives, right? Skin color being one of them. Where you're born is another one, right? Who you're born to. All these different things that people hate one another on or judge people on uh, that we don't control. My, my, my goal is to stop people from judging others based on those things. Um, so the mission I go around and just remind people because somewhere along the lines, we forgot that uh, Chris is a black man, right? I'm an African-American, um, but Chris didn't choose to be this way, right? I was born into the skin that I'm in. Um, I was born with the parents that I have. And far too often, Brian, and it's, it's sad to me, I'll see it with kids, I'll see it with adults, I'll see it with the companies that I serve. They literally will judge people based on things they didn't control either. And, you know, my mom, my mom was killed based on the color of her skin. So uh, now that's my mission, right? Unity. Uh, and it doesn't mean we're going to sit by the campfire and sing Kumbaya together, right? We don't have to sit by the campfire and listen to the same music, but there will be a certain level of respect for every single human being because we realize, hey, regardless of what Brian looks like on the outside, I remember he didn't choose his skin color just like I didn't choose mine. Um, and so that's kind of what the, the, the mission, the purpose of my life is now. And I've been fortunate to, to kind of share that purpose in different ways. And my faith is, is just allowed me to do so. When I think of the word unity, I think of accepting differences and acknowledging that we're different. And as a society now, we're having that conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And companies are paying to actually do this work inside their organizations. And it's 2021. And, and these are conversations that are having that are happening. And when I think about unity, I also don't think about only just accepting differences, but also acknowledging that as human beings, we actually have a ton of similarities. There are, sure. there are elements that are so similar about us, and yet we choose to go against unifying around similarities and our differences. So talk about unity in that word and, and how it involves acknowledging differences and perhaps looking at each other and recognizing that we actually are, are more similar than we often give ourselves credit for. 
Yeah, I think the greatest example of that in, in me as a former athlete and just a, a sports guy, right? You, you'll have, let's say, New York Jets fans, right? Jets fans from that look different, that maybe have a different accent, right? They're from all over. Um, and so if you have Jets fans and they'll, they're united in the fact that they love the Jets, right? They'll be talking about football. They'll be complaining about their team. They'll be <laughs> all these different things that will definitely happen with Jets fans. And then you may say, okay, well, they're alike in that way, but maybe they're different in where they were, where they were born, or maybe they're different in their uh, social economic system that they came up in, right? So they're different in so many different ways, but they're still Jets fans. And I, I love the fact that sports always brings people together um, in, the, in the way that, hey, if we cheer for the same team, we're automatically boys, right? If you're if I'm a Lions fan and you're a Lions fan, man, we, we've had the same struggles over the years, right? We, we love one another based on that. And then from other things, maybe we can talk about the fact that we grew up in different neighborhoods, uh, but we're still Lions fans, right? And around that sports theme, I always think that sports brings people together, especially you go to a sports bar and you look around the, you look around there, right? And you'll have people from all over wearing the same jerseys, but look really different. And I think that's a really, uh, cool image for me in my head because unfortunately if it wasn't around sports would they all be cheering for the same thing maybe not it's interesting i'm involved with a nonprofit called peace players and we actually had their co-founder on the podcast and they go to places where there is hate and people hate each other conflicts they're in israel they're in ireland they're in south africa they're in cyprus and they're in the u.s in some of our, our cities and they go into these places and basically roll out a basketball. And then the people that are supposed to hate each other start to see each other as people. And through basketball, they recognize that they're actually just people. Um, it's it. really powerful nonprofit, really powerful. I'm, I'm thinking about this though. And, and there's some bragging rights in that too, Brian, because instead of, you know, <laughs> instead of it becomes a rivalry then, you know, it's like, Hey, we beat you guys on the court last year. You know what I'm saying? So I think, I think that's a great way to do it. There was also like a, I forgot there was a very, very famous runner um, who actually went back to Africa. I'm not sure where she was, but instead of doing like the tribal wars, they did like peace marathons. And the way that they competed against one another was through the marathons instead of just the wars that they always had. And that became like their battling, right? We think about the Olympics now and the pride that we have in battling other countries and you want your country to win. There's pride there. Um, I definitely think sports is a way to kind of unite one another um, and create rivalries instead of the, the wars that we see. We'll talk about baseball in a little bit, but I want to stay here for a minute. I'm thinking about your mom and I'm thinking about her murderer. And I'm wondering, what do you think her murderer's punishment should be? Yeah. So um, during the trial, I, I wasn't super involved. So some forms of grief, like some people want to to be there at every single moment, want to see, you know, everything, every meticulous detail of the case that I was that wasn't that way. Right. My mom's not coming back. And so for me, I said, if he gets life in prison, um, that's fine with me. Right. Whereas other people said, Chris, that's not what we want. We want the death penalty. And, um, you know, it's so hard to say, hey, I want what I what I'm thinking from my mom's killer 
to be to reign supreme when it wasn't just one person that was taken away. There were so many people that were taken away. It's like how selfish of me to think, hey, what I want is what everybody should want. And so when he got the death penalty, uh, people were excited about it. People were saying that's what he wanted. Um, and so I've kind of been at peace with knowing like, hey, my mom's not coming back, unfortunately. And so whether we give him a death penalty, whether he serves life in prison, it's not changing the fact that my mom's no longer here. And me forgiving my mother's killer, right? Forgiving him actually freed me from constantly thinking I need to get revenge. Like how, how am I going to get revenge that he feels the same pain that I felt? It's not going to happen, right? And so now that I forgive him, I didn't even, to be honest with you, Brian, somebody asked me, hey, Chris, where's, this is like a little kid. They asked me like, hey, where's your mother's killer being held at, right? You said he's got the death penalty. Where is he being held? And I had no idea. And I really still didn't, don't even know where he's being held at. I don't even know if you could find where he's being held at. But I didn't need that because forgiveness freed me from trying to figure out how am I going to get revenge at this guy and constantly think about him and be, and that's poisonous. And so I mainly think, number one, I hope that one day he can come to a place where he apologizes because he's never said sorry. Um, I hope he can one day do that. Um, it won't probably affect me because I've already, uh, I don't need an apology once I've already forgiven somebody, right? But there are so many other family members that were affected that that truly do need that sorry, or excuse me, that, you know, I apologize for what I've done and, you know, I shouldn't have done it. Um, and so whether he gets there or doesn't, I don't need it, but I hope that one day um, he, he can get to that space. I want to share a previous guest with you and maybe the two of you can connect because you're, you're similar in a lot of ways. So his name is race Bouillon. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with race. Um, have you ever heard of race before? I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't think I have. So after nine 11 race was living in, in Texas and um, there was a white supremacist in Texas after nine 11 who started targeting Muslims mm. and race was working at a gas station and the guy walked up and asked him, you know, are you a Muslim? And before race could even answer, the guy shot him in the face. Wow. And race survived. And, you know, had tons of surgeries on his face and just a brutal, brutal attack. And they found the guy and this guy had killed other Muslims and was just targeting them after 9-11. And, um, Race was able to survive and then went to Mecca um, and came back and decided that he was going to try to save the man's life because the, the man was given the death penalty in Texas. And I'm, I'm shortening a much longer story for the sake of this podcast, but I can send it to you. You can listen to Race's story. But uh, Race went so far as to actually develop a relationship with this guy and found out that the lethal injection medicine that they use in Texas was being made um, in Scandinavia somewhere in a country that doesn't believe in the death penalty. And so mm. he got a company to stop making the medicine. Um, My goodness. He couldn't save the guy's life. He ended up dying. But at the end, the man wrote Race a letter saying his story about all the hate that existed inside of him based on how he was raised and that race must have had incredible parents um, because they taught him not to hate. 
And I'm getting like emotional even talking about it because it's just this amazing story. Um, and and so when I when I talked to Race, it was really incredible to hear his perspective and um, his desire to try to understand. Um, and I, as I see the way that you're using your tragedy to try to make the world better, it reminds me of race. Um, and I think part of why I'm in awe of it is because I don't know if I would be doing what you're doing. And I don't know if I would be doing what race did. And I think whenever I hear that, I get inspired because it's like, well, maybe, maybe I would do something differently. When you hear race's story, what comes to mind for you? I think of a hero. I think of, you know, uh, what I believe what humanity should look like. Um, empathy, the fact that race was trying to figure out, you know, more about his upbringing. And I even think the fact that the the guy that tried to, you know, take race's life was saying he must have been raised by great parents. And the way that race was raised, I mean, the, the, the way that the guy was raised uh, was in a way of, you know, bigotry and racism and and hatred, it just confirms like what my what my mission is. Like the, the mission is to reteach because unfortunately people have been taught to hate me because of my skin color, right? And so just hearing that, man, I I, I gotta meet him for sure. Like, I, I don't think that you're telling me that on accident, right? And I don't think it's coincidence either. So I gotta figure out how to, how to meet him. Um, and I'm sure you can set that up, but he's, that's phenomenal. Yeah, we'll make it happen. I think the two of you are on interesting paths and I shouldn't say interesting paths, use the word hero. I think on heroic and inspiring paths, that those are the words that I would use way more intentional. And I think we all need inspiration in our life. I, for a long time, I don't know how you feel when someone calls you a motivational speaker, but for me, when they would say that, I'd be like, eh, I don't really motivate people. But then someone <laughs> said to me, well, but you can inspire people. I said, you know what? That's true. Like we're humans, we need inspiration. And the work that you're doing is, is certainly inspiring. You're about to say something. So jump in there. Yeah. I was going to say like, I don't, I don't, I don't say motivational speaker either. Cause I don't scream or yell when I share. Right. That's not me. And it, and it you know what? I actually like listening to that stuff when I'm working out, but <laughs> that's not what I do. I, I kind of go in there and just share my perspective and share my story in hopes that I can change somebody's heart. You know, I actually shared with the hospital and there was a guy who's a, he was a really high up in, his, in the hospital. I believe he was the CEO of the hospital. And he was basically saying, Chris, you know, you talked about how it shouldn't be just our experiences that make, that shape our beliefs, right? Just our experiences. Because, you know, if it was just based on my experiences, I'd hate all white people because a white man killed my mom and tried to start a race war. If it was just one of my experiences, I would hate all white people, but that's not the case. Right. And so for him, he said, you know, Chris, I actually got beat up pretty bad as a kid and I got jumped and I almost passed away. And I, since then, I've always, I've always kind of hated young black men because they're the ones that beat me up real bad. Now they went to jail, you know, they got out and he's like, I didn't want them to get out because I almost died. And he just kept going on and on and on. And as he's saying this to me, I'm thinking, here's a guy that is leading hundreds and hundreds of people that he doesn't like. He does not like people that are young black men like me, right? He just has always hated them because of his experience. And 
you know, after hearing them share that, I'm thinking, man, there are so many people that either have been taught the wrong thing or their experiences just lead them to thinking, hey, I'm never going to like these people based on those based on what I've been taught or based on what I've experienced. And unfortunately, that's what I feel like race is. I mean, yeah, I think race is trying to undo and that's what I'm trying to undo. And it, it, it's it, I can go down a long rabbit hole of that thinking, but that's ultimately what the mission is. Yeah, you just hit on something that I'm so curious about, which is experience and stories and how those shape the narrative and sometimes get in the way of the truth. But here you are, man. You're using an experience to do this work that is really fulfilling to you. So how do we balance these experiences to move us by not being beholden to the experience to shape our perspective? Yeah, so my experience is what motivated me to keep doing the work that I'm doing now, right? So if I if I didn't lose my mom the way I lost her, there's no way I'm going to be talking around talking about race around the country. No, that's not what I would be doing, but I'm using that to fuel my purpose now, right? And so my experience was a white man came into my church, took nine lives and wanted to start a race war in this country, right? That was my experience. So now from that experience, I'm motivated to stop people that maybe think like that, right? That, that maybe aren't even there, but they're somewhere near there, right? So that's my that's that's what I'm doing now with my life. But it also doesn't mean that I can hate all white people for doing for doing that, right? It means I can't just hate somebody because they're young and white because a 21 year old white male did that to my, me and my family. So I think there's a there's a I use it to fuel me, right? But I don't think that everybody I don't put every white person in that bucket because of what happened to me, and that's where people get into trouble. When they say, okay, because this is my experience, this is how everybody that looks like uh, this person that did, everybody that looks just like the person that did this to me is now just like that person when that's not the case. So here's what's so interesting. And I never really thought about this. Your mission was going to be your mission. If you had gone on and played pro baseball and had all this success and, you know, played 10 years in the league, whatever it was, it doesn't mean that your mission would have necessarily been any different. No, for sure. Well, even when I was playing baseball, when I was playing in the minor leagues, like I would sign my name, I would you know, sign my signature and I still do this today. And I would put love is greater than hate. And people would ask me, why the heck are you putting love is greater than hate? People that didn't know what I went through in my story. And I would share with them um, what happened to me, my, my family. And then I would start the conversation and here you have a, you know, 60 year old white man and I'm me, young black dude talking about race at a baseball game after I signed a baseball for him. And I think the mission would have still been there, even if I played 15 years in the big leagues. Now, my bank account would be a lot heftier. Right. <laughs> I'd be sitting a little prettier, but the mission would still be the same. Um, and I think that's a testament to what um, I've kind of channeled my focus in on this life. I didn't want to just be an athlete. I want to be more than that because I have the story and I have the, the platform to share. Um, and so whether I played a bunch of years in the bigs or, you know, didn't make it to the big leagues like I didn't, then the mission was going to be the same, like you said. But I think we conflate that just because I have a certain experience, then I have a mission. There are plenty of people that have experiences, whether good or bad, but they don't have any mission as far as their life goes. And so we can still be very mission-minded, even if our career doesn't align with that mission. You and I are very fortunate. Look, like we get to talk for a living. I mean, 
many other people don't have that privilege. That is, that's a fortunate thing to be able to blend what we are mission-minded about with, and people will pay us for it. Like we're both very fortunate for that, for that, but there are plenty of people that are going to listen to this podcast that maybe they work in a factory or maybe they work at a law firm or maybe they work in a school and they still can be mission-minded and, and, and go toward that mission, even if their career isn't completely aligned with that mission. Yeah, Brian, I, I would also say this as a part of grieving, anybody that's gone through something, right? Which everybody has. Some people, a flat tire is the end of the world for them. Whereas, you know, for me, that's like a mosquito bite. It's nothing. But I honestly believe everybody that goes through something needs to use that as some way to, to, to fuel them in the future, right? So let's say it's, you know, for just off the top of my head, whether it's gun violence, right? Let's say you, you fell victim to gun violence, somebody you loved. Um, you don't have to become a speaker about gun violence, but there are nonprofits you can volunteer for, or maybe you could start something because you don't like anything else. And you say, hey, I don't, yeah, I want to still be a lawyer because that's what I love, but I'm still having this mission now with this nonprofit on the side, right? So I think as a part of grieving, being able to say, I want to be a part of the solution is a way that you can help in your grieving process. Now, um, on the other side of, you know, people that don't have forgiveness in their heart, uh, maybe they just have just been trying to constantly get revenge on, on whatever happens to them in their life. Um, I've seen people say, instead of being part of the solution, I'm just going to hate the person that did it. And that's all that I'm going to do. And I think that's a scary place to be in because you, you then say, hey, I'm putting all my energy and effort into just hating the person that did it instead of saying, hey, I want to stop more people in the future from being that person. And I think when you're trying to stop more people in the future from being that person, um, it's a healthy place to be at. How do you think about guns? You know what? I, I, I kind of view guns in this way. In, in a perfect world, I think there'd be no guns, right? Because I, I, I'm a peaceful guy. I think love is stronger than hate. But I know that's not possible. One of my best friends um, carries a gun all the time. He knows I feel weird about it, but you know, and I, it, it comes back to our, our experiences, right? For me, unfortunately, what happened to me happened to me, right? My mom was shot six times, or actually eight times while she was praying. So I don't like guns. It's easy to see why, why I don't. But if my friend says, Chris, you know, I, I grew up this way. You know, my father always carried a gun. I always carry a gun. Like I understand there's empathy there, but I do not like them for obvious reasons. Um, but it doesn't mean that I hate people that like guns. Absolutely not. Right. I just hate when people use them in the wrong way. And unfortunately, that's what happened to me and my family. Let's talk about your mom a little bit. Track coach, ordained minister. Talk about the impact that she had on your life. Yeah, man, I think um, I was very privileged and I, I don't use that word lightly. I was very privileged to have a mom um, that not, was not only a provider, protector and priest, but you know, she, she was a loving mom. She literally would kiss me on my cheek after baseball games and at my high schooler, right? She was that kind of mom screaming in the stands. Um, and she was highly motivated too. I think as a, uh, as a child who gets to see their mom work hard, right? She was getting her PhD when she was taken away from us on this earth. Uh, but just seeing that work ethic was a privilege. Um, seeing the fact that she was able to buy me a $200 baseball glove and a $300 baseball bat uh, on a teacher's salary uh, every year was just a privilege. Um, 
and not every not every kid has that. And so I was definitely fortunate to have a mom like it. Uh, one of my one of my buddies says, "There's nothing wrong with being a being privileged, right?" So I think there's nothing wrong with being privileged because I was privileged to have a great mom, right? I think the only problem is when you don't recognize that you have that privilege, right? And so we call it. <laughs> We say when when you when you're standing at third, right? Your parents got you to third base, but you think you hit a triple, right? My mom was it was an all star mom, so I was sitting on second base because she went to college already, and she told me, "Hey, Chris, this is not the way you say this word. You should say it in that manner, All right?" Speech language pathologist didn't let me speak slang, right? And so I was standing on second because I had a great mom and I was privileged, but I know I didn't hit that double. I didn't hit a double. She she got me there, and so she was an all star, and I'm grateful for my time with her. What was she getting her PhD in? Uh, speech language pathology. So uh, that was what she did and that was what she loved. And so that was her next step in, in hopefully becoming a professor one day was her, her thing she wanted to be. So my wife is a speech pathologist as well. So I chose her. You got, you got, uh, you got, you hit the lottery and just, <laughs> I hit the lottery in a completely different way. I mean, I, 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 I didn't choose her. She chose me for being <laughs> honest. Um, and so, yeah, we're both fortunate to have them in our life. And, and you said in our conversation at the beginning, you said my parents died young. Um, what about what about dad? Yeah, my father. So my father passed away about a year and a half after my mom. And so I grew up. My dad was a great dad, but he was a really heavy drinker. Right. So alcoholism was uh, something that was throughout my whole life. First, it was functioning alcoholic. Right. He could drink and go to work the next day. And then it became non-functioning, um, unfortunately. And then they got a divorce, got remarried, right? Because he was sober for a year straight. Ultimately, he couldn't couldn't put the bottle down. And, um, and after my mom was killed, it was like, you know, it became worse for the worse. You know, more than a pint of liquor a day, unfortunately. Um, and his liver failed, ended up passing away about a year and a half after my mom. Um, and from that is actually what sparked me taking care of my brother and sister, uh, you know, my, me and my wife, we've been together since high school, but, you know, it was me and my wife taking care of two teenagers and we were 20, 20 and 21 at the time. So it was tough, but uh, we, we definitely uh, learned a lot from trying to be parental figure rather than big brother. Um, and then I, I, I ultimately, man, they, they're doing great. My brother just graduated. He's about to play baseball in college. He thinks he's better than me. Not even close, <laughs> but he's doing well. Sister's in college now. Um, and I'm still with my high school sweetheart with a couple with a son and a son on the way. But yeah, man, things have shifted, but unfortunately lost my dad pretty young too. What did you learn about becoming a parent, uh, you know, early? And then obviously you decided, Hey, I'm going to continue this and, and have some of my own, but what did you learn, you know, early on when you started to have to parent instead of be a big brother? Yeah, I think mainly I, I, I tried to be, the parent, like the dad role, um, the enforcer, this, that, and the third. And that shift was just, they just, you know, they rejected that wholeheartedly. They were like, dude, get out of here. You're my brother. Don't act like you're my dad. And I think once I kind of shift, shifted that to being, hey, I'm just going to leave by example. You guys see me. You see what I do. I'm going to show you regardless of what we've gone through, guys, we can still accomplish great things in this life, right? We're going to do it for our parents, Right. And so by leading by example in that way and being big brother, that's where we finally were like, hey, things are working out great. But at first, 
it was tough, man. I, I'm not going to lie. At first, I was trying to be the, the enforcer and this, that, and the third. And they were like, dude, get out of here. And uh, fortunately, man, I learned pretty quick that leading by example is the best way that they'll, they'll catch on to, hey, he, he wants the best for us. Who's got your back? Who helps you and make sure that you're good? Man, my faith is my rock. I told you, I'm going to be honest. Like when I, when I didn't have anywhere to go, I would literally Google scriptures that would help me get through my day, right? And um, it's therapeutic for me to pray. It's therapeutic for me to sit there and just talk about the things that I'm going through and ask for strength, ask for wisdom. Um, you know, every now, I, I like reading self-help books just like you do too, right? Those things are, are good for me. My wife has got my back, right? We've been together for nine years now, I feel, uh, since high school. So she's always been there. Um, but ultimately, man, I, I think it's just my faith has just been my rock. It's interesting. I get text messages Monday, Wednesday, Friday from someone who works for the New York Jets. So it's it's funny that you mentioned the Jets, just a random team. <laughs> and I like the last text message I think I got today was from my friend who works for them. And he sends me scriptures Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I, I just keep, I haven't told him to stop. Um, but as I said, I'm Jewish and I'm looking at these and I, I just don't really, there's not a whole lot of connection for me. Um, but I, you know, I think about, well, maybe he, he's doing that for him as much as he's doing it for me um, and to hold himself accountable to, mm. to sort of sharing these with the world. Um, and, and so it's, it's just something that I'm thinking about as you're talking about faith. Um, look, our country right now, are we unified? I, I mean, I, I tend to be an optimist and I tend to think that people often downplay how good it is today and tend to think that yesterday was always better, but there's no denying the division that exists in our, in our country uh, in a, in a multitude of ways. Um, as you go around the country and, and talk about unity, what are you hearing um, from others as it, since 2015 and, and you see this atrocity, how, how have you heard it? Have things changed? Are you noticing any differences? Um, what are you seeing from, from your eyes? Yeah, I'd say I'm an, I'm an optimist as well. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, try to read into too much doom and gloom, right? Because then you'll stay there. Um, but I think, you know, it, it's interesting. Like, I, I don't think we're there yet, obviously, because there is still division in our country, right? And it's prevalent and we see it. Um, but I think, unfortunately, people, uh, they realize for the first time, hey, I, I shouldn't be thinking what I've been thinking for so long. You know, I've, I've been thinking this way for a while, but and now everybody's actually showing me that's not the way I should be believing that's not the way I should be thinking about these people or that people or those groups of people so for me I've got hope because I hear stories like people that say hey for the first time Chris I put myself in the shoes of a of an Asian man right I, for the first time Chris I put myself in the shoes of a black woman right and, and these are coming from white people that I would have probably they probably would have never done before and so I've got hope because I see that stuff happening um but I don't think we're there yet because Obviously, you know, you still have people that are just teaching their kids the, the wrong thing, right? I have neighbors, unfortunately, that I'm still loving on, making sure they know, hey, you shouldn't be, you probably shouldn't say that, man. You know, I, I love you and, you know, I'm not going to cancel you because you're my neighbor and we're boys, but let's make sure you don't say that out in public because that's not, you don't say that, right? 
And so I, I think there's definitely teaching moments that we should have. Um, but I am optimistic that we're, we're moving forward and we've, we've kind of had to, you know, I, I'm not a huge political guy. I stay out of politics, but um, anytime there's somebody in power and there's division because of their, you know, maybe things they're saying or things they're doing, or maybe they don't mean it in that way, but maybe it comes out that way um, and, and we get into trouble. And so I think we definitely have to move forward for sure. Well, I'll say it. I think, you know, Trump was very divisive and whether that was the outcome or the intention, I think we all sit here and like the reality is it, it, it caused a lot of division. And I think that that's just my opinion. Um, I could probably pull up stats that would show that the outcome is that we're very divided. Uh, I live in Washington, DC. Um, so I'll, I'll just put my two cents into the ring. Um, yeah. You were about to say something too. Yeah. And I agree. I think before people, people wouldn't feel comfortable sharing that because they thought that was wrong. Right. They didn't feel comfortable sharing those feelings that they had. And uh, you know, whether the intent was there from Trump or not, or whatever the, whatever it was, people felt comfortable just sharing, Hey, you know what? I don't like these people either. I don't like that. I don't like, and uh, that's when we got into some trouble. And, you know, the good thing was we saw people's true colors, you know, we, we were like, Oh, okay. I didn't know <laughs> you felt that way, but but now I do. Um, and so, you know, I, I gratefully now I think people are saying, hey, I don't believe in the cancel culture. I, I don't I don't at all, because if we cancel everybody, then they can't be taught anything. Um, but I think now when people are they, they want to hold their tongue a little bit because they don't know if that's the right thing to say, to say I think that's a good thing. Right. Um, but I don't think we should be tiptoeing around. Should I call Chris Black or African-American? No. I, you know, why don't you ask me? And then I'll tell you. I don't care. Either one's fine with me. Um, but I do think we need to make sure we're not saying something that's going to uh, pierce somebody's heart, uh, even if the intentions aren't there. I agree. Multiple things can be true. So I could believe that Trump was divisive and I could believe that a lot of the flames that he stoked were already burning. And I actually think there's a benefit to that as well, to your point. Like we can now have, let's, let's have a conversation about what you truly believe instead of having it in the corner whispering to people that look like you. And like sure. that to me is the optimist in me. It's like, all right, yeah, let's get this stuff out there because if it's underneath the surface, then like really bad stuff can happen as well. And, um, and so for me, there's an optimism and I agree with you as well. I think I've said stupid stuff. And I've had people check me and I appreciate it. And hopefully I don't lose my job over it. And I think it's, I don't agree with people losing their jobs for something that they say. I think there's way better ways for us to teach and learn and grow as a society. All of us, when people say something that they would have said somewhere else, and there are lines and there are lines to everything and for sure. where those lines live for me and where they live for you could be different, but there are consequences when you do stupid stuff in this world. And when you say stupid stuff, and that's also a reality. So I know I'm, I'm speaking in a lot of different directions, but it's what I believe in. And I think we need to continue to push the envelope as far as what's acceptable, what's not acceptable and continue to stay open to learning why and how people come to the conclusions they come to. And um, that's the only way we can grow and change is we have to have curiosity and empathy and have conviction and stand up when something is said or done. That's not right. And that's, that's about it. That's my soapbox for, for today. I agree with you, man. But like, like I said, like if, 
if you and I have a relationship, Brian, and I say the wrong thing, you're going to correct me and teach me in that moment, right? Because we have a relationship. But if I don't know you, right, and you don't know me, and, and, I, and I say something about Jewish people, and I say it without even noted, knowing how insensitive it is, right? You're going to automatically be like, ah, I don't know about Chris, you know? But if we have a relationship and we're like, hey, and I say something off the wall, you're like, dude, Chris, don't don't say that. That's not what you do, bro. Like, that's not what you should say. And I'm like, oh, snap. I didn't know. Let me know. Tell me more. OK, I'll, this is a real story. I just happened not too long ago. Uh, you know, somebody that I do some work with, um, he's he's Jewish as well. And I asked him, I'm like, man, like, you know, I didn't know about a ton of Jewish history. So I just started asking questions. Right. Some of these questions, if a random person asks him this, he's like, it's definitely going to be insensitive. And, you know, I'm just asking about his, his grandfather and things that his grandfather went through. And I'm like, did he ever tell you about any of these? Stuff? So we're going down the rabbit hole. And because we have that relationship, I learned so much more about Jewish Americans. Right. And I had no idea before. But I think the, 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 the scary part is the thing that I don't like is so many people don't have that relationship that they don't even they won't even learn the things that I just learned. Because they're so scared of saying, hey, I don't know Brian well enough to ask him this, so I'm not going to ask him. So I'm going to just think this about all Jewish people instead of just instead of inquiring and learning. They don't have those relationships, Brian. Yeah, we talk about mission and I'll certainly connect you with Ray Spuyan. Um, but another piece that I'll talk to you about is I'm really pretty gung ho on creating black and Jewish alliances because there is benefits to having pride in your culture and your differences. Like we talked about earlier, one of the downsides that can occur if you have pride for your culture is sometimes people segregate uh, out of fear. Mm. And, mm. and, and sometimes they segregate because of systems and sometimes they self segregate out of fear. And for me, the, the, the upside is they can have pride and they can create organizations and cultures that support each other. The downside is when, when you segregate ignorance can then live in the parts where you're, where you're not at. And 100%. like a big mission for me is around, like there is so much shared between humans that gets un unshared because we're segregated or separated. And then the other side of it is I worry, you know, and I'd be curious to get your perspective on this. One of the upsides of the church for so many years was that it was a place that people went to, to learn about themselves, to grow themselves and to give back. Like there's a huge tie between philanthropy and religion. And as our society becomes less religious, I worry that we're going to become so individualistic that there won't be a support for my neighbor. There won't be a community element that we need. And so I think we're at this amazing crossroads because while American culture often provides opportunities for individuals, we also have a long history of unity and patriotism or religion, uh, like systems that actually support each other. Um, so these are things that I think about pretty, pretty regularly. Um, yeah. 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 I also think with, with people, whether you're serving with a, you know, religious nonprofit or not, like when you volunteer, when you serve people, it just makes you feel better. Right. I've never seen somebody go into volunteering at the food bank and come out of it saying, man, I just feel worse than what I did before. No, you feel good 
after serving people, right? And I think a lot of people don't understand, like, nobody wants to be, you know, relying on others to get stuff, right? Nobody wants to say, hey, um, I'm at the food bank because I need food for my family. Hey, I'm at the, you know, whatever shelter because I need to stay there. Like, nobody wants to do those things. And so um, I think if we break it down, it's like, hey, I'm one you know, diagnosis away from being that person. Like if my son gets cancer, I'm, I'm selling everything to try to, you know, do as much as we can to, to cure my son. And so I might need that food shelter. I might need the, the clothes for my, you know, family. Like, so, so when I have that perspective, I'm never above serving. And I don't think anybody should be. It's beautifully said. We mentioned Trump earlier, but there's a moment that I want to get your perspective on, which was Obama singing at the memorial in in South Carolina, because when a lot of people think about Obama's presidency, that moment is like ingrained in a lot of people's heads as as you said earlier, like getting into politics, good presidents, bad presidents, like everyone's got their own opinions and everyone's got their own political perspectives. And you're you're entitled to that. And I have friends on every side of those aisles, as you should. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really important to. Um, and we need to continue to let people vote a and keep that private and and b like we're all entitled to vote however we decide and diff- people have different reasons for voting the way that they do. But as it relates to that moment in that church, to me, it's the best of Obama is this this um, soul that I think he has, um, the spirit that I think he has, and I think. There were times during his presidency where he was afraid to share that side of him. Um, that's just my opinion. But that moment right there was him at his best for me. But I have a very different lens on that moment than you do. So I'm curious to get your lens on on that moment. Man, that that moment was surreal. So I actually got to meet uh, President Obama um, as well as Michelle Obama. And who else did we meet? We met. Um, I'm not sure if I met. Uh, our now president Joe Biden that day, but I think I met him maybe a couple of days before. And, you know, I think when he started singing, when he was sharing, I think number one, it was like an out of this world experience, but it also made him more human, you know, because we look at the president, we look at anybody that's uber famous or world leader like that. And you, you forget that they're human just like everybody else. And I think that kind of made him seem more human to me and my family. Um, and it was just one of those moments that I think I'll, I know I'll never forget. And I hope most people, I hope that goes down in the history books, like you said, is like something that is just a moment for the ages. What did you feel when he was doing that? Man, I, I don't know. I feel like that whole day was just filled with so many emotions, right? It wasn't like I was a fan. Like so many people came there as just fans of, you know, the president or fans of, you know, just wanting to be there. And so for me, I came there out of paying respects and um, honoring the life that was lost, the many lives that were lost, but especially uh, our pastor. And so I just, I don't know. I felt like, that whole day I was just crying and emotional and for a, for a small moment, it made me smile, you know? Yeah. It's beautiful. 
you do speaking. So I don't know what it's been like for you over the last year and a half with COVID and, and potentially some challenges speaking. Um, but talk about your mindset when, when you're speaking. And then I know that you also coach people on speaking. Um, so I'd imagine this is something you're pretty passionate about and something that you enjoy diving into. So talk about your mindset and how you think about speaking. Uh, and then also how you think about helping others become their best when they're speaking. Yeah, I think mainly for me, um, speaking was something that I didn't really want to do with just kind of opportunities presented themselves. And so when I was coming up as a speaker, it was just volunteering everywhere. And finally I would get opportunities that were large and then I got good gigs and that led to more gigs that led to more. And it just started snowballing like that. Um, but it wasn't something I wanted to do. It was just something I got opportunities to speak to these companies from sharing with other companies and it just snowballed. And now I'm speaking probably 50 to 70 times a year. So obviously now you are going around the country speaking and I'd be curious about what that has looked like the last year and a half for you, but also I know that you're passionate about coaching others on speaking. So talk about your mindset when you are speaking and, and how you try to be at your best. And then what are some things that you work on when you're coaching others to be at their best when they're speaking? Yeah. So you know, my, my talk is usually around unity, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging work. And so over the last year and a half, it was actually the best year and a half, year and a half I've had since I started speaking. Now, I did, think I did uh, 54 virtual engagements last year out of the 76 that I did. Um, and so 54 of them was, were virtual, you know, in front of the computer screen. Um, but I think over the years, man, I started speaking professionally in 20, end of 2016. 2017, I was still playing baseball. I was just doing it in the offseason. And to be honest, that was the only way that I was able to, you know, feed my family because minor league salary is, is a rough, <laughs> it's a rough living. Um, uh, but then it just start, started to keep progressing. And so now um, I look at it as an art form. I usually speak 70% stories, 30% content slash uh, data. Um, and it's really about the best speakers or the best storytellers. And uh, I've had mentors, uh, some of them, you know, are huge authors. One guy's name is John Gordon. Another guy's name is Inky Johnson, phenomenal story, who's helped me in this, this, uh, th this world of speaking. And um, it's grown to where I was speaking to, you know, little league teams. So now I'm speaking to companies like Boeing and Volvo and Microsoft. Um, it's grown tremendously over the years. And, and I just basically coach people up on what I've learned. Um, I listen to every single podcast you could probably find, watch every single YouTube video, ask a million questions to a million different speakers. Um, and I basically just package that up and, and share with people who want to be coached on it. And so what does a coaching commitment look like? If I said to you, hey, Chris, I want to do the work that you're doing. I want to get on the road where I want to do 50 virtual speaking gigs. What does that look like? Yeah. So, well, number one, I have to make sure people know what that means as far as I want to get on the road. I'm gone like 100 to 120 days a year. And so that's not everybody. Right. I've got little little kids. And so when they get older, I probably won't be gone that much. But I basically break down what it looks like for my perfect year. Um, and I help them craft that. I help them craft a keynote. Um, I help them with the outreach of who they should be reaching out to if they want to get their first uh, engagement or if they're already, you know, an executive with a company, they want to do this on the side. 
you know, speaking is a is the highest paid uh, side job there is. Um, and so we'll basically break it down into four different sessions. And I do everything one on one, too. Um, and we kind of just craft it. You know, first, we'll talk about what their perfect year looks like, help them craft a keynote, hopefully all their marketing, their social media is in place. Um, and then after that, we'll kind of see who we reach out to. Uh, and then we got the best marketing is a best is a great keynote, right? I don't get to speak to Microsoft at 24 years old if I don't have a great keynote speech. And I think by crafting that great keynote, it's what's gotten me booked and rebooked and being able to share with your boys, the Wizards, right? I share with them uh, last year. And so that's kind of what I basically teach people how to craft that perfect keynote. 10 years from now, you're 35 years old and you got... I don't know how many kids, but hopefully at least two. Um, yeah. What are you doing? What are you doing? Man, I, I, I absolutely love what I do now. So most people spend a lifetime trying to figure out what they want to do, what they're good at. I know exactly what God's called me to do, and I know what I'm, what I'm really good at. And um, I don't want to sound cocky saying that, but, you know, I, I've literally studied it so much, you know, the, the, the art of storytelling. Um, how to get a point across, how to rise emotion so people can feel what's coming out of my mouth. So I, I know what I want to do. I've written children's books. The Obama Foundation actually supported my, my first children's book and pushed it out there. Um, it's called Different, a story about loving your neighbor. Second one's done really well. Just actually just sold out of our first printing. And this second one's called Your Life Matters. And so kids' books are great, but I want to write uh, another book, um, more of a self-help book, for lack of better words that I would have needed to read when I went through the worst of the worst, um, getting people out of that dark time, um, that dark space in their lives, maybe right after tragedy, maybe right after, um, you know, something in their life just totally shifted and help them get to a place where they can thrive um, and not just get by. And so that's kind of what my next mission, my next uh, project will be. And so I'm, I'm excited about that. And hopefully I'll still be, uh, hopefully I'll be a great dad, great husband, um, and be doing what I'm doing now. I can't complain, man. You're, you're such a thoughtful guy. What, what do you intentionally do either daily or monthly or weekly or annually to make sure that you're at your best? Yeah, well, I actually wrote, read this book called wealth can't wait. And I basically write down what the perfect year looks like. How many dates am I going on? How many times am I, you know, teaching my son a new thing? How many, uh, baseball games and my little brother am I, am I going to how many lunch dates am I going on with my little sister like all those different things um and and, and that's what kind of keeps me aligned how much money am I making how many how much money am I giving away so uh, that's kind of how I set up my my, my life every single year and from there we just keep moving forward and that's kind of what I what I do that's that's really cool I've never heard of that before Chris you're wise beyond your years, my man. Um, I know you said I'm young uh, a couple of times in this podcast, but it didn't feel that way. And I always was seen as someone who was young. I felt um, I, I felt like I remember giving a talk to a pro sports team or a college sports team um, and always feeling like I was young or going to a corporate event and they'd be like, oh, you're young. And I, like in the beginning, I didn't know what to do with that. I was like, okay, I don't know what to tell you. And then I started to realize if I'm young, it probably means I'm in the right room. And it means I'm in the right room for a couple of reasons. Number one, it means that, okay, like maybe I'm doing something significant that 
they're seeing me as early to the party. And two, if I'm young, if I'm the youngest person in the room, that means that there's so much wisdom to be gleaned from that room and that I can also be a learner. And so for you, I'm sure as you impact and influence all of these other organizations and these people, you're ready and you're able and you're competent. And you're also probably learning a ton as you go through it. So I just want to thank you for coming on the podcast. I learned a ton from you during this conversation and you gave me a lot to think about. Um, and I can't wait to continue to see what you do next and to read your book at some point as well. Thank you, man. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. My experience is what motivated me to keep doing the work that I'm doing now, right? So if I if I didn't lose my mom the way I lost her, there's no way I'm going to be talking around talking about race around the country. No, that's not what I would be doing. But I'm using that to fuel my purpose now, right? And so my experience was a white man came into my church, took nine lives, and wanted to start a race war in this country, right? That was my experience. So now from that experience, I'm motivated to stop people that maybe think like that, right? That, that maybe aren't even there, but they're somewhere near there, right? So that's, my, that's, that's what I'm doing now with my life. But it also doesn't mean that I can hate all white people for doing, for doing that, right? It means I can't just hate somebody because they're young and white, because a 21-year-old white male did that to my, me and my family. So I think there's a, there's a, I use it to fuel me, Right, but I don't think that everybody, I don't put every white person in that bucket because of what happened to me. And that's where people get into trouble.